Welcome back, my fellow creatives, to another edition of Story Cuppings. We are here in the final week before All Hallows' Eve, and what better time to try a witch's brew, as it were. Well, you know, I can't really say witch this time. I'm going to still say brew, though. Uh, a brew straight from the holiday, as it were. Uh, for this brew was crafted by none other than Ray Bradbury. And no, it's not something wicked this way comes, as tempted as I was to read that this year. No, we are going to read something that is just shy of 50 years old from the mind of Ray Bradbury. We are going to take a sip from the spooky tale that is the Halloween tree. Now, I know this book is, you know, meant for kids. Last I checked. <laughs> um, and yet, hmm, mayhaps the tastes, the flavors, the tones here will be more suitable to grown-ups who enjoy a good young scare as well. Let's take a look at this first page, this first chapter, and see what we can see. Oh my goodness. May I just say, first of all, that the illustrations in this edition I have are absolutely gorgeous. Illustrated by Joseph Mugnani. I apologize if I'm not saying his name correctly. He, it reminds me a lot of... Um, of... Oh... Uh, Edward Gorey. Reminds me a lot of him. Okay, let's start this first chapter. Now that I have been properly inspired by this peculiar flying gentleman with bat wings. He looks a bit like a skeleton. Ooh, I wonder who he is. All right, let's find out. First chapter. Here we go. It was a small town by a small river and a small lake in a small northern part of a Midwest state. There wasn't so much wilderness around you, you couldn't see the town, but on the other hand, there wasn't so much town. You couldn't see and feel and touch and smell the wilderness. Oh, I love that. Oh, and, mm, I love Bradbury, especially because that's where I live. This is, this is where I live. This is like 90% of Wisconsin right here. It just, <laughs> um, where it, it, it's just towns that have just kind of like burrowed in their little hole in in the wilderness, in the valleys, in the forests, in the fields, in the prairies, and nature continues to just kind of grow around them. And they they remain steadfast, and yet they are very much, very much alone. All right, let's keep going. The town was full of trees and dry grass and dead flowers now that autumn was here, and full of fences to walk on and sidewalks to skate on and a large ravine to tumble in and yell across. And the town was full of boys. And it was the afternoon of Halloween, and all the houses shut against a cool wind and the town full 
of cold sunlight. But suddenly, the day was gone. Night came out from under each tree and spread. Behind the doors of all the houses, there was a scurry of mouse feet, muted cries, flickerings of light. Behind one door, Tom Skelton, Skelton, make sure I say his name correctly, Tom Skelton, aged 13, stopped and listened. The wind outside, nested in each tree, prowled the sidewalks in invisible treads like unseen cats. Tom Skelton shivered. Anyone could see that the wind was a special wind this night, and the darkness took on a special feel because it was all Hallows' Eve. Everything seemed cut from soft black velvet or gold or orange velvet. Smoke panted up out of a thousand chimneys like the plumes of funeral parades. From kitchen windows drifted two pumpkin smells, gourds being cut, pies being baked. The cries behind the locked house doors grew more exasperated as shadows of boys flew by windows. Half-dressed boys, grease paint on their cheeks, here a hunchback, there a medium-sized giant. Attics were still being rummaged, old locks broken, old steamer chests disemboweled for costumes. Tom Skelton put on his bones. He grinned at the spinal cord, the rib cage, the kneecaps, stitched white on black cotton. Lucky, he thought. What a name you got, Tom Skelton. Great for Halloween. Everyone calls you Skeleton. So what do you wear? Bones. Wham! Eight front doors banged shut. I'm just going to pause here again because so there, in this page and a half, we get so much sensory detail. But in the sensory detail, we're also getting a sense of our character's anticipation. We don't have to be told, Tom Skelton is excited for Halloween. He really wants to go outside. No, I, we are not being told. We are being shown. And we are being shown through so many unique choices of detail. And the word choices, too. I, oh, I am not the biggest person of audiobooks, which is, again, pretty ironic, because here I am on this podcast reading, right? <laughs> irony um but the reason i love to read so much is i love to see the words in front of me and i love to say them out loud myself to get a feel for the languages to get a feel for the ebb and flow and of the authors out there one i do enjoy listening to aloud is ray bradbury because there is something in the word choices in the prose that gives you that sense of being carried away by the language. And that is a sensation that nothing else can give, quite like a beautifully told story. All right, let's go back. Eight front doors have banged shut, if you recall, in this town full of boys. Eight boys made a series of beautiful leaps over flower pots, rails, dead ferns, bushes, landing on their own dry, starched front lawns, galloping, rushing. They seized a final sheet, adjusted a late last mask, tugged at strange mushroom caps or wigs, shouting at the way the wind took them along, helped their running. 
glad of the wind. Or cursing boy curses as masks fell off. Or hung sideways or stuffed up their noses with a muslin smell like a dog's hot breath. Or just letting the sheer exhilaration of being alive and out on this night pull their lungs and shape their throats into a yell and a yell and a yell! Eight boys collided at one intersection. Here I am, witch! Ape man! Skeleton, said Tom, hilarious inside his bones. Gargoyle! Beggar! Mr. Death himself! Bang! They shook back from their concussions, all happy-fouled and tangled under a street-corner light. The swaying electric lamp belled in the wind like a th cathedral bell. The bricks of the street became planks of a drunken ship, all tilted and foundered with dark and light. Behind each mask was a boy. Who's that? Tom Skelton pointed. Won't tell! Secret! cried the witch, disguising his voice. Everyone laughed. Who's that? Mummy! cried the boy inside the ancient yellowed wrappings like an immense cigar stalking the night streets. And who's... No time, said someone hidden behind yet another mystery of muslin and paint. For the record, that's all like, all the first letters are capitalized there. That's, that's that person's title. <laughs> that person's name is someone hidden behind yet another mystery of muslin and paint. I love it. Trick or treat. Yeah! Shrieking, wailing, full of banshee mirth, they ran on everything except sidewalks, going up into the air, <laughs> over bushes, and down almost upon yipping dogs. But in the middle of running, laughing, barking, suddenly, as if a great hand of night and wind and smelling something wrong stopped them, they stopped. Six, seven, eight! Well, that can't be. Count again. Four, five, six. There should be nine of us. Someone's missing. They sniffed each other like fearful beasts. Pipkin's not here. How did they know? They were all hidden behind masks. And yet, and yet, they could feel his absence. Pipkin! He's never missed a Halloween in a zillion years. Boy, this is awful. Come on. In one last swerve, one dog light trot and ramble, they circled round and down the middle of the cobble brick street, blown like leaves before a storm. Here's his place. They pulled to a halt. There was Pipkin's house. But not enough pumpkins in the windows. Not enough corn shocks on the porch. Not enough spooks peering out through the dark glass in the high upstairs tower room. <clears throat> Gosh, said someone. What if Pipkin's sick? Well, it wouldn't be Halloween without Pipkin. Not Halloween, they moaned. And someone threw a crab apple at Pipkin's front door. Front door made a small thump like a rabbit kicking the wood. They waited, sad for no reason, lost for no reason. They thought of Pim Pipkin and a Halloween that might be rotten, a rotten pumpkin with a dead candle if, if, if Pipkin wasn't there.
Come on, Pipkin. Come out and save the night. And that's the end of the chapter. Heavens, I got to keep reading this. But we can't do that. It's a first chapter review podcast. Okay, so first chapter. We have a beautiful sense of place. And what one of the other things I love about the details of where this place could be. Yes, it says Midwest state, but that's pretty generic. If whether you live in the United States or not, the Midwest is a big region. It's it, pretty much anywhere. You just don't have an ocean. <laughs> and uh, so this setting, this anywhere could literally be outside your front door as a reader. And this gives the story a bit more realness to it, especially with the relatable experience that is excitement for Halloween. Now, I know not everybody celebrates Halloween. That is fine. Whether you celebrate it or not, you have seen other children excited for it. You have seen the eagerness for All Hallows' Eve. And that is something we are all, you know, many of us are able to identify. And even if we don't ourselves share in that excitement, we understand at least a bit where it comes from, especially if you're a kid and you're going to go out and get candy. Um, now, we also have a sense of age here because we get, we do have the age of one boy. And from there, we can be making the general assumption as a reader and writer that the other boys are similar in age. Uh, as a writer, that helps us save some time so we don't have to try and like name all the other boys right this moment. We just work with one and then we go from their costumes. And that's fine. Because it's just, as you can see, I mean... Look how fast I was able to go through that first chapter because Bradbury wants to establish the conflict as quickly as possible. While also, and his focus isn't on who all these kids are right now. The focus is on the place. The focus is on the night. The focus is on the absence of a character. The absence of a child and how that affects the group. That's why we only have the name of one kid and then the kid who's missing. Will we get the names of the other kids? Yeah, later. And that's fine. But we didn't need their names all right this second. We just need to know there's other kids there. And using the costumes as a way to do that saved Bradbury a lot of time in trying to hear, I'm just going to throw the whole cast at you. No, he didn't do that. And as a writer, I find that's a very wise decision because readers, and I learned this, I've learned this the hard way reading some of Agatha Christie's books where like the first chapter seems to just, let's spend two paragraphs with each character in a cast of 12. And you have to try and somehow keep all these people straight. No, you're not going to keep them all straight. And so Bradbury chooses not to do that. And so, yeah, we can keep a decent grip on some costumes. That's not too bad. As opposed to suddenly throwing <clears throat> eight more names at us. 
we also have a very strong sense of the camaraderie and why Pipkin's absence would be such a problem. Because not all kids are going to worry if one of their friends is sick. I mean, they might feel bad, but they're just going to go out and get trick-or-treating. Maybe they would just want to get candy for them. And that's like, that's a pretty, you know, that's typical. That happens a lot. Okay. But clearly the friendship in this group is so very strong that the absence of one brings the whole group to a halt. It it dampens all of their excitement, not just the excitement of one or a few, of everyone's, which just shows the impact one character can have upon his friends. And Bradbury needed that to be established because, as we learn from the blurb here, of uh, what Halloween Tree is about, looking at the jacket here of the blurb, um, these friends are out to find their missing friend, Pip. They want to find him. They need to find him. Because we we didn't meet our villain here. I have a feeling I met him in the illustration before the, the chapter started, because he's a pretty yowza-looking guy. My goodness. But we needed to understand why these kids would go that length to save their friend. And by establishing, well, if they are feeling this way just over Pip's absence over Halloween, of course they're going to go the next step. That if they find out he's missing, they're going to do what it takes to find him. And so establishing this care, this camaraderie in this brief first chapter justifies decisions made by these boys in the chapters to come. We didn't have to see him. We didn't have to see all the stakes laid out in the first chapter. We have some ominous foreshadowing in this first chapter, but not all the stakes told to us. We have been shown enough to want to see more. For as a reader, I know I got to find out what's going on. I need to know what's going on with Pip. And as a writer, I can see that in just, let's see here. What is this? One, two, three, four pages. I've not only established my group of protagonists. I've not only established my setting. I have also established the stakes. And that's a marvelous accomplishment in just four pages. It all boils down to the priorities, I think. And you as a writer may have your own opinions as well. But I think by prioritizing the setting and the feelings and the friendship, Bradbury was able to give us just enough to make us care about these kids and find out what's happened to their friend. I think it's safe to say that whatever adventure they endure, conquer, achieve, acquire, whatever they go through, it will be a Halloween to remember as they save their friend. And may your Halloween be one to remember as well. <laughs>
my fellow creatives. Read on, share on, and write on, my friends. Cheers. <laughs>